Welcome to Conversations on Contemporary Worship. I'm Adam Perez. And I'm Glenn Stallsmith. Glenn and I are part of a team of researchers at the Divinity School at Duke University who study contemporary worship. If you're a worship leader, a pastor, or you teach others to lead congregations in worship, this podcast is for you. We're interested in the well-trod paths about contemporary worship like music and technology, but also conversations that go much broader and deeper than that. On our podcast, we dive into cutting-edge scholarship on contemporary worship through conversations with leaders in the field, from ethnomusicologists to theologians and sociologists to historians. Our goal is to introduce you to a wide range of scholars and practitioners from whom we have something vital to learn about contemporary worship and the church. In our conversation today, we talk with Dr. Monique Ingalls, church music scholar and author of the recent book, Singing the Congregation, How Contemporary Worship Music Forms Evangelical Community. Dr. Ingalls reflects on how five recent sites for the performance of contemporary worship music are shaping the church, its musical practices, and ultimately its communal identity. We explore the usefulness of the term evangelical and how ethnographic research methods are useful for both scholars and local church leaders. Let's get to the conversation. Thanks, Dr. Monique Ingalls, for being with us on the podcast today. We're so grateful for your work. Um, as you uh, sort of introduce us to the topic of your book, can you tell us what's the scope and, and what part of contemporary worship were you really looking at in your book, Singing the Congregation? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, thank you, Adam, for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to, um, to be here and to get to talk about this. Um, you know, in some ways, the, you know, the, the, the broad, you know, looking at um, kind of zooming out the, um, the big question that, uh, you know, that my book addresses is how does the music of contemporary worship form community within early 21st century North American evangelicalism. And I had some you know, difficulties at the start of the project thinking about the scope because I knew I didn't wanna confine my study to an individual church or you know, even to a church network. You know, I wanted to be able to paint a broader picture. So what I ended up doing was choosing several sites that I um, identified as strategic centers for the production and distribution of worship music in, in North America. So the book is structured into, there are five chapters that each examine a different, um, you know, what, what I'm calling it, a, a congregation. Um, so uh, including, of course, the church congregation, which has, you know, it's right in the middle. It gets in some ways kind of pride of place. But I also identify concert congregations, conference congregations, um, public congregations, and then um, online or networked um, congregations as well. And so I lived, you know, I was, so this is a, you know, an eight year project. So I was all over the place during, during that time. I lived in Nashville for three years, you know, kind of the seat of the Christian music industry. I made an attempt to visit, you know, a bunch of different evangelical and charismatic mega churches, you know, that were producing worship music, like the Passion Church in Atlanta, IHOP in Kansas City. Um, gateway in Dallas. But I also, you know, attempted to keep my finger on the pulse of what was going on outside those kind of centers of music industry and ecclesial power. So seeking out mm. conversations with those in small churches and really, I mean, I was attending mostly small churches, you know, on um, as far as my own uh, place of worship during, during that time. And of course, there is the, you know, the discourse taking place about worship music online. The book represents many, many hours on, you know, kind of strategically chosen discussion forums and social media, especially YouTube, and then um, certain church and record industry websites. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, the book is, you know, in some ways it's an, um, uh, it results from an accretion of ethnographic projects carried out in smaller chunks between about 2006 and 2013. So that eight-year time period and the studies of multiple spaces, you know, within that kind of gave me the confidence to define the scope a bit more broadly as trying to paint a picture of contemporary worship music within North American evangelical Christianity. 
Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, and partly, you know, I, on one hand, I hear you talking about defining contemporary worship music on its own, but the other half of it, or not half, there's a, there's a few, <laughs> the Venn diagram probably is multiple, uh, multiple levels here. But, um, but another side of it, perhaps, is uh, mm -hmm. defining American evangelicalism and something you're sort of doing in the, at least in the introduction to the book, which, yeah, yeah full of, full of landmines and, and sort of thing. Can you tell us about, um, Tell us about that, and maybe if if you can weave it in a little bit about how your sense of that definition, um, as you do in the book, shifts perhaps from the early projects until the publication mm -hmm. date, which uh, happens at a at a peculiar time in American evangelical uh, history. Yes, that, a very good observation. And uh, there was a lot of kind of retooling, rethinking that had to be done between the time I completed my research, which was really, as I said, 2013, um, you know, to, uh, to when I was when I was writing the book. And, you know, the evangelicalism has always been a, a, di a difficult thing to define, I would say. And many historians, many theologians have spent uh, yeah. or have spilled much ink or, yeah. you know, digital, whatever the digital equivalent is uh, <laughs> about this. And that was one of the concerns when I first started the, uh, you know, the project was, you know, there were these definitions of evangelicalism, you know, flying around that were either the Bebbington quadrilateral, you know, that were based on, you know, certain hallmark beliefs and practices. But then you go into an individual community and you think, huh, I see three of these, but not the fourth one. Sure. Or, you know, the, the problem with these definitions that um, that insist on certain, um, you know, content of belief mm -hmm. or certain hallmark practices is that not every community that considers itself evangelical or that would be, you know, defined as evangelical by scholars yeah. shares all of those. And so one of the, you know, kind of one of the early um, insights or kind of, or I, you know, ideas that I had in thinking through, you know, uh, how music relates to this is, you know, is that in part, what if we think about evangelicalism as, at least in part, as musically constituted? What if evangelicalism itself, um, you know, can be defined by its proximity to and its discourse about certain trends that are happening in music. And certainly we can broaden that to include worship, you know, itself, we can broaden that to include, you know, a number of different practices. So I think my understanding of evangelicalism is one that is very much a, you know, a community of, you know, that's defined by social practices and that is in conversation, you know, with one another that, you know, yes, there are some of these broad similarities, but they're not going to apply uh, equally or evenly across the churches and networks and individuals that are part of this conversation. But one thing that they seem to, that seems to hold much of evangelicalism together are some of these conversations that I describe about music and worship. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and two, you know, uh, naming that it's not, um, not, you're not limiting the definition of uh, American evangelicalism to people who practice contemporary worship music, but who are in discourse about and with, and because yes. yeah, I'm also thinking of the sort of, you know, just the, well, the full, the range of, of what contemporary worship music is, but um, the ways in which they're practiced in local congregations. Yeah. Absolutely. And and it remains to be seen, you know, one other important kind of caveat to this, to the defining evangelical, you know, it, I, I think that it's still an open question, you know, as to how, how useful that term will be right. in describing the group of people that this book describes, uh, right. you know, at the moment that I was, um, you know, putting things together, kind of 2016 and 2017, you know, we have a massive um, you know, shift in, in national politics. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, you have, you know, this, this issue of people abandoning ship, both in, you know, going away from evangelical congregations or simply not labeling themselves mm -hmm. evangelicals anymore. And so, um, you know, so there are problems with kind of sociologically how evangelicals are being constituted and the fact that it's, um, I have this, you know, there's, continuity, but then there's also a large difference kind of pre-Trump era and post-Trump era 
who is describing themselves as being in that camp. So in some ways, my designation evangelical, keeping that eight year time period in mind, you know, the 2006 to to 2013 is, uh, you know, is important there. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for clarifying that. And the the additionally, you know, to this is just the the question of, you know, you have these five sites and um, can you just say, you know, how did you come to those five sites? Do you feel like, and maybe perhaps, you know, what, what other sites could we be attending to? And, and just the, the five sites seems they're so helpful um, for this space, for identifying the spaces where the discourse, where the conversation is happening. Um, How'd you come to, to, you know, limiting the scope that way? Yeah, great question. I, uh, you know, I started out, and I'll, I'll admit, I started out in um, in the church, um, kind of squarely. Um, in fact, I did uh, sort of a, um, an interview blitz my first year of field research. I think I did over sixty interviews right. with. Um, with mainly with music ministers and uh, and and worship leaders and kind of from there you know as i got to know you know different congregations you know of course had conversations with um you know with lay people and uh you know volunteers in music ministry as well but i started out in you know in churches and kind of and examined from there like where where are people getting their ideas about about worship or uh, where are they getting the songs that they're using and from there kind of branched out into okay i'm starting to see you know some of the you know the, the powerful the movers and shakers and the networks and so this is i've you know this has come up in five conversations this week i should probably make sure to yeah attend one of these conferences. Mm -hmm. So that was mainly, it was kind of starting in the church, seeing what was influencing leaders and, um, and congregation members there, and then choosing some of these, uh, these sites, you know, for instance, the national worship leaders conference, um, you know, is, is, is one, the um, uh, passion and passion church and passion conferences are another where I spend a lot of my time as well as the, uh, as well as Urbana. And I was, and there were a few people that, you know, there was some some overlap who were saying, I go to this conference and that conference and, um, you know, in this concert. And from, you know, from the, the conferences and networks, I, I also, and also from just, you know, my studying and perusing evangelical media, you know, you get to know certain names that are coming up again and again, certain celebrities, you know, because there are celebrities, yeah. worship, worship leader celebrities that you think, okay, when this person comes to town, you know, I'll, I'll yeah. go to their concert or even, you know, I'm going to seek out the, the nearest yeah. concert. I uh, lived in, uh, as I mentioned, lived in Nashville for three years, but um, took frequent trips. The four hour drive to Atlanta was, uh, oh, okay. was something I did quite a bit to, to get people who would, who would land there. I see. So not everybody came through Nashville. This seems surprising to me. Believe it or not. Yeah, there are there are other hubs, and of course, um, you know, I didn't in my own work. Um, you know, one thing that I, in some ways, supplemented through, um, you know, both through online research and the work of other scholars was West Coast. That was sure. one. My my work is pretty squarely, you know, focused on the middle of the country and the, you know, and the and the okay. East Coast. But of course, there's a lot of a lot of significant things going on on the West Coast too. Yeah, it feels helpful to say too. You know, the the academic conversation has highlighted, uh, at least as, as far as the contemporary worship industry goes, has highlighted the sort of uh, geographic, uh, the gravity of Nashville, um, and and pulling in you know companies and becoming, in some cases, moving from Southern California to mm-hmm. Nashville or other yeah. places, Mobile, Alabama to Nashville, but yeah. naming that there's there are these other. So would you call them subcultures or I mean, yeah. is there another is there a language for these other geographic centers uh, that, that are beyond yeah. the Nashville conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think other other centers of say, I don't have a good sure. short name for it, but, you know, yeah. other other centers of music, industrial, ecclesial power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Let's just add the modifiers and we'll get we'll get there eventually. That's right. Um let me ask this question, you know, five massive projects on their own. Um, can you identify some things that were 
particularly surprising about um, what you what you found and what you learned uh, through this project through these projects? <laughs> sure, I I think one of the things that initially um, I think that that initially surprised me was I knew that I was going to have to go you know beyond local churches. I think when I, at the very beginning of the project, I initially, you know, planned it as a, um, you know, either a, you know, a multiple church case study or a, you know, using all of these interviews with, uh, with music ministers, those kinds of things. But I think it, it's a, I'm not sure whether it should have surprised me, but, you know, but it did. The, um, the degree of authority that the local, congregation in some ways had had lost if if it had ever had it to begin with i mean i think i think that's an open mm -hmm. you know question for you know for historians uh, okay. certainly to you know to deal with um but the degree of authority the local congregation had lost or perhaps seated um mm -hmm. in determining the meaning and even the very definition of worship um wow. to especially to the music to the music industry to you know wow. forces within the commercialization which of course are tied up i know that these you know there's not a there's not a hard and fast distinction between the commercial and the ecclesial you know when you when you're talking about yeah. mega church networks that are not you know we think of Na you know nashville is of course the seat of the you know of the music industry and all of those mechanisms but now there are so many you know, churches, we think of Bethel and Hillsong and Gateway and others who are certainly collaborating with music industry machinery, but that are, you know, themselves um, brands. Mm -hmm. And and so I think, you know, I quote from a, um, a college age woman uh, kind of from early on in my field research, who is at a worship concert, who said, you know, it, it just reverberated through um, you know, through my work, what you, the, the way that she said it, you know, that this, this concert, it's more sacred than church. Hmm. That's the way she put it. And that sentiment was repeated, you know, many, many times by evangelicals from a number of walks of life about these spaces, you know, beyond church, whether you'd have someone who says, you know, I, you know, I connect with God better in front of my mobile phone, you know, as I'm crying, listening to this YouTube video or being encouraged by the comments, you know, of other people worshiping, or, you know, I live for this one yearly conference that I go to where I feel like I can really worship, um, you know, and give God, give God my all. So, um, so that was one thing. I think the authority to define and determine the meaning um, and, you know, and, and function and definition of worship. But then I think another one, another one was the, you know, the, the way, the degree to which the music industry, uh, the Christian music industry is either, I mean, if you want to take this, if you want to look at, at it um, sympathetically, is either blind to, or if you want to look at it cynically, <laughs> or is, um, you know, trying to cover over um, it, the, the, the effects of, of what it is that, that, you know, that they are doing. So one of the things that you would hear, mantras, every concert, every, you know, every meeting of, you know, mm. these celebrities, whether it was online or, you know, whatever else, there are these mantras that you hear over and over again, like worship is more than music. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a way of life. Yeah. Um, and... And yet, you know, they're making millions upon millions of dollars in some ways convincing people and reinforcing the idea that worship is music it you is know, music. and it is the culture that, you know, yeah. that that's, that surrounds it. And yeah. so um, so I think that that was something that was that, that was that was disheartening to me um, in, in the process. And I'm sure that a lot of times I'm not impugning motives. Well, yeah, I guess I was impugning motives. <laughs> but if I were not to impugn motives, yeah, yes, sure. I, uh, yes. If, if I weren't to do that, you know, I think that, um, I think that many, you know, many 
believe, you know, they believe these things that worship mm -hmm. is more than music, mm -hmm. but what the music industrial complex has done is uh, you reference Josh Busman, and I'm sure that he, he's, he's featured on one of these podcasts talking about the musicalization of mm. worship within evangelicalism, you know, yeah. over the past 20 or 30 years, where the two yeah. have become in, you know, even if, you know, we give lip service to the fact that, oh, no, these aren't the same, they kind of are in the in the minds yeah. of a lot of a, yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, I like how in, sort of in two ways here, the contribution to our conversations in in worship studies or, or worship conversations, you know, you're, you're asking us to think about ecclesiology differently and the mm -hmm. networks of way of the way Christians are formed and feel like they're participating in a mm -hmm. church, if you will, or participating in corporate and gathered encounters with God. But yeah. also, uh, you know, a question on, on a, a theological anthropology, on what it means to mm -hmm. be... Uh, you know, worship as a lifestyle, this language of like, um, uh, I'm a worshiper, you know, like that, that's my identity. Mm -hmm. And it should, for all Christians should become their sort of center modus operandi, you know, they're, it's, it's who you are. It's not just, yeah. I mean, even as you say, we have this reinforcement that you become those things through your musical <laughs> engagement, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just the, the, some, some renovations here on, on thinking about what, um, yeah, how we have the the sort of classical conversations on uh, Christian identity and 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 church identity, ecclesiology. Yeah, that works. And and while we're while we're on the topic of you know of, of ecclesiology, I mean, some of the one of the things that I thought of often as I was preparing this book for publication is, you know, as I, I'm an ethnomusicologist, not a theologian, you know, and there was sometimes that sense of what. <laughs> say what what authority do i have to be you know using the term ecclesiology you know let alone um you know let alone commenting on it but uh, but i will say you know there's uh, there's been a lot of a lot of excellent work that um that i felt like i could contribute to in the area of of lived ecclesiology so yeah. lived ecclesiology meaning um, you know what is what is the sense of the church that you know that people have you know that the people, you know, that um, not, not that they're supposed to have, not in this prescriptive sense, although I'm not discounting, I'm saying, you know, church leaders obviously need to be concerned with, um, you know, with shepherding people towards a, um, a view of the, of the church that allows for human flourishing and, and, and worship. But, uh, but I think one of the things that is, that is, that is still needed is a sense of, um, not just, you know, how should people gather? How should people think of themselves as church? But starting from that place of, you know, how do people gather? What is it that gathers Christians together, mm -hmm. you know, for um, for worship? And how do they understand, you know, themselves? So I think my, what I hope my contribution to ecclesiological discussion is is that, you know, is a robust picture of the lived ecclesiology you know, of, of yeah. North American evangelicals. Yeah. I, there's, a, I'm reminded of a passage uh, or, or a section in the book on, um, I believe it's in the conference uh, congregation on uh, the, the comparing the, the eschatological communities um, in, implied by the practices at Passion Conference versus the, mm -hmm. at Urbana and just how striking it is to hear you um, unpack in that section, these two ways of, um, imaging being at worship as a participation in heavenly or our worship as a participation mm -hmm. in heavenly worship or conference worship, I yeah. should say, as mm -hmm. a participation in heavenly worship. Um, yeah. Can you say a little bit more about, about the, that, that piece? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a, uh, that chapter, um, in some ways, compares and and contrasts the the eschatological vision that's implied by um, two major conferences for college students, uh, the Passion Conference and the Urbana Conference. And I went to I, I don't think I've ever been so tired in my life <laughs> going to two of these. They're back to back, so I had just yeah. enough time to fly, you know, from uh, from one location to uh, Urbana's always first. Urbana's every three years, whereas Passion is is every year. And the um, I went to both of these uh, twice, six years apart. 
And, uh, and what I found was in talking to people and in listening to the discourse that was coming from the stage, what they were saying about, you know, the purpose of the gathering, even the songs that they were choosing, is that heaven was a theme that came up again and again and again. And trying to compare, you know, the leadership, you know, from the stage, the idea was, this is a taste of heaven. And it was as far as my conversations with, um, you know, with conference goers, that was imparted very effectively because what I, in these interviews, multiple interviews, you know, that I did the, the last couple of days of the conference um, over and over again, unsolicited without me even mentioning, you know, uh, the idea of heaven that came mm-hmm. up again and again and again with students saying, oh, this was, you know, it was like a little piece of heaven. And then they would go on, they would tell me, you know, usually they'd invoke, you know, some verses in Revelation for, you know, every tongue, tribe, and nation, you know, are gathered together around the throne of the Lamb. And so they'd theologize it in that way, oftentimes with that, <laughs> with that theology that been provided of... to them, yeah. uh, you know, already over the course of the conference. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that was a striking similarity. But then looking at um, the difference in the musical difference in basically everything around the music making at these yeah. conferences. So both in the social, the way that music was socially organized. So who was chosen um, to lead, what mm-hmm. they looked like, um, you know, what groups yeah. they represented or or belonged to, all the way to the songs that were chosen. You know, what um, what repertories are they drawing from? How broadly, you know, how homogenous or how heterogeneous is the song? repertory and then considering musical styles so um is is everything in a relatively homogenous kind of pop rock um mainstream modern worship style or are uh, you know is there internal variety with um you know with gospel or you know certain latin american popular styles being brought in, brought in yeah. and what i found in comparing even though the discourse of heaven is similar in both conferences when you look at, when you look closely at what's going on in the music, how the music is representing the heavenly mm. experience to the conference goers, mm. it's starkly, it's a stark contrast in one conference, say, you'll read the book to, you know, to, if you aren't, don't already know yeah. which is which, you can read the book to find out. <laughs> um, but, uh, but in one of the conferences, the, um, you know, their heaven is what I draw directly from, you know, a, um, uh, the only, um, the only talk in the conference that, um, that mentions music specifically, you have a segregated eschaton, you have an Mm -hmm. eschaton where everyone is worshiping in their little groups, you know, according to the music, and there's Mm -hmm. not a, you know, a sense of, of unity. And that, of course, has the practical implication of, you know, we don't really need to worry about, you know, the, you know, the global church or, you know, mm-hmm. conciliation or, you know, getting to know others, you know, beyond yeah. our, you know, our, our homogenous group here. Whereas the other conference was very intentional about mm-hmm. saying every tongue, tribe and nation, that means that we need to, you know, learn to um, worship in, in other languages. And we need to learn to appreciate, you know, other, um, other styles. And so, mm-hmm. so those, yeah, I think what I found fascinating about that is this, you know, kind of in some ways surface similarity, you know, of the eschatological vision, you know, when you went deeper using music as a lens, um, really separated itself out into into sharp contrast. Yeah, and it, it's striking to me too, you know, this basic theme of how worship involves us in the eschatological uh an eschatological worship or the worship of heaven is something that you know so many traditions over over history have have highlighted right mm-hmm. like somehow whether it's um, uh the allegorical readings of a of a liturgy that you know you know the procession is actually the the saints you know or you know these different mm-hmm. ways but that they're bound up with a kind of ethics in this case yes. um and that's something mm-hmm. i talk a little bit about with with josh in the other episode but mm. um but yeah, just um, the I feel like it touches on the temptation to see these worship gatherings as um, sort of theologically neutral. Like the worship is worship, mm-hmm. worship is worship is good. Just mm-hmm. you know, like you're worshiping. Mm-hmm. And it has, that there's this other level of interrogation that 
and, yeah. and lens that that mm-hmm. um, that your work and, and others and ethnography itself can can bring mm-hmm. to the conversation. How do you think ethnomusicology makes a contribution to studying Christian worship communities as a method? Mm. So one, I think one key aspect is the way that ethnomusicologists um, understand music to begin with. So, you know, it's important to, to note that music is, is, not, is not primarily uh, looked at as an object or a text. You know, those are, of course, you know, those are, there are, of course, artifacts, you know, that come from music. Of course, there are recordings and, um, you know, lyrics to be analyzed, these kinds of things. But, um, but ethnomusicologists see music as a social practice. Ethnomusicology puts the accent on people making music. Mm. And as a result, it pays close attention to, um, to social relationships in the process of music making. And it also highlights the beliefs and practices that facilitate and accompany music making. So I think in some ways, those qualities are what make it, in some ways, you know, play so well with, mm-hmm. um, you know, with other discussions, with ecclesiology, mm-hmm. you know, with mm-hmm. people making church, you know, yeah. and people making church through their worship or through, you know, through their music and also liturgical studies, looking at not just being concerned with, you know, the music itself, but what all else is happening, you know, in, in a musical performance, what happens before and after and around it. Um, so being concerned, even though music is the focus, the liturgical context, the ecclesial context also being, um, being really key. And I think ethnography also is, is incredibly helpful uh, because of the, you know, the the method itself, the you know the ethnographic method, which is really a collection of methods. And I think ethnography, at its heart, is really about is about suspending judgment. Not that you don't come back and evaluate, because of course we, we you know we all do, but suspending that evaluation by observing and listening first. And I think that that's a, an incredibly, a, a hugely important and um, and useful practice for uh, for Christian leaders who often, you know, for the sake of time and other things, who rush to evaluate practices without really understanding them first, you know, without really understanding what's going on or why people are doing what they're doing or what a practice really means to them. So ethnography gives away, it's a set of, observing and listening practices, you know, that can include formal interviews, structured observation, participant observation, and also, you know, some other qualitative social science methods like surveys and focus groups, you know, if you want to go there. But, you know, so there's that on the one hand, there's the the distance, you know, in some ways that you're getting by suspending your evaluation. On the mm-hmm. other hand, one of the things, an, another important contribution of, you know, of ethnomusicology and current ethnographic practices is the self-reflexivity embedded in the method. So ethnographers are trained early on to constantly reflect on how who they are shapes the questions that they ask and the responses they receive. And even how interaction with others, the process of asking these questions and being immersed in a field, how that's shaping them. I think the best ethnographic accounts aren't, um, you know, sometimes there's the aspersion of, oh, that's just, you know, that's all navel gazing. And yes, you know, if you're focusing on yourself, um, you know, in your writing, it can be. But um, I think the best ethnography proceeds from a place of self-awareness that acknowledges, you know, the potential biases as well as just the inherent, um, inherently partial nature of knowledge. You know, when you have a human being that is the research instrument of talking to other, you know, other human beings with their own perspectives and, you know, and biases and, um, you know, and, and blind spots. And I think that the admission, ethnography's frank and open um, admission of human limitation and situatedness of, of knowledge, you know, so getting away from claiming that this is some kind of godlike perspective um, is, is something that, uh, that is a benefit to, that can be a benefit to any field of study. Yeah. I mean, it's just very clear. Uh, it seems like a very clear, um, uh, like you said, being able to like interface with other disciplines, um, for that, for that reason that you're, you're focusing on the, 
the the, the people. Uh, something that, of course, practical theology, much of practical theology has turned turned toward too, and, and liturgical studies. You know, I like to think of uh, our work in liturgical history in a similar way. You know, it's not starting with the bias about history's story, but, uh, and in many cases, doing the interviews and, the, you know, kind of employing some of the ethnographic tools yeah. um, for, for yeah, for similar similar ends. And also, you know, I just want to say, it sounds like it also invites us into a more virtuous life. Uh, <laughs> something about listening and, uh, you know, being present to these stories and these people. There's sounds something holy about that. Um, thanks for... Absolutely. Thanks for I would say that's, I would say it sounds like a great book for you, you know, is, you know, ethnography is as sanctification. Or... Yeah, that, well, I'm not Methodist. So, you know, I'm not too worried about my <laughs> participation in it because of God's work, but um, uh, you'll hear the reformed community. But um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, sometimes we talk about projects as interventions. And I imagine, uh, or mm -hmm. my guess is that the conversation, you know, changed over the course of the, or progressed over the course of the mm -hmm. project. But can you describe just the your sense of what intervention this project was making in the field? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think my the the intervention or what I thought you know was the intervention of my work um, changed through my years of research. And um, early on, there were two challenges that I saw. You know, one was that back when I started my work in two thousand six. Um, no one was talking about <laughs> musical sound. Mm. Like I saw scholars making all kinds of sweeping generalizations mm. about contemporary worship music that didn't square with at least the way mm. I was hearing. And, and, and when you say scholars, in what fields are you thinking yeah. here? Good, good question. So there were no, and in 2006, there were no eth ethnographers or very few oh, sure. way, who were dealing with, you know, I can think of one, uh, one or two works actually coming out of the UK, um, you know, in that time that are dealing with contemporary worship music. But um, for the most part, you have, um, you have uh, theologians, um, a lot of church leaders who are addressing, you know, church leaders with various, you know, degrees of, you know, kind of formal theological training that are yeah. writing treatises pro or proximity. That's exactly. So yeah, so you have the yeah. kind of the, the, the treatises, and then you have, you know, some um, works, I know there was a really important essay collection on praise and worship, not the not the music, but the uh, praise and worship as liturgical practice um, that came out in 2007, I believe. But at that point, there were there were not a lot of, you know, scholars um, you know, looking at it at all, let alone, yeah. and when they did, they weren't talking about the music. So as a musicologist, I was drawn mm. to, you know, I had a different set of questions. I, you know, had their readings left me, you know, dissatisfied with certain elements. And so, um, you know, they, some of these works would you know, describe the song's lyrics, but not say anything about the musical sound yeah. or the styles and what these meant to the hearers and whether sometimes they sent a conflicting message to the, you know, to the lyrics, sure. which sometimes happens. So I, I felt like what was being ignored was, you know, a crucial part of the song's meaning and an affect. Mm -hmm. And the other gap that I saw was the, there was a tendency to have a very top down understanding of worship music. And this goes to what we were just talking about that, church leaders were writing these books about contemporary worship music to an audience of other church leaders in ways that didn't take account of the views of lay people or the, you know, the people who were making this music, or if they did, it was by way of, you know, kind of personal anecdotes that we all know are really easy to, to cherry mm -hmm. pick and say what you want them to say. So I was increasingly skeptical of those accounts and thought that an ethnographic approach would help to diversify and give a fuller account of the perspectives of, of evangelicals. And so that was kind of early on later in, as I was formulating all these years of research into the book, I saw, you know, I saw the challenges very differently. And, 
ed or, or what the intervention, you know, that my work could make. And part of this was due to the groundswell of writing on contemporary worship and its music in kind of the 10 intervening years. So between, you know, 2006 and 2016, when I was working feverishly to, you know, to finish this book, dozens of articles, dozens upon dozens of articles, not just about North American contemporary worship music, but Europe and Africa and Asia. I mean, mm. the, dozens of sources had come out that that both that took the musical sound seriously that addressed style and genre and you know and these other things but that and that used ethnography or other approaches like you've described oral history um practical theology sources that are that are you know actually talking to to the people in the pews to get the perspectives of people beyond religious authorities and and yeah. cultural elites so yeah. one challenge um and one intervention that i hope um uh, that, that my that my book makes is in part in gathering up a lot of these conversations that are happening you know many of the conversations are local or regional or you know specific to contemporary worship music in you know this particular European country or um you know or in this particular church network um you know or denomination and so um something that I always endeavor to do and it brings me great joy is to you know to acknowledge and to highlight all of the amazing work that has gone on to be as explicit as possible about the foundations of this field and kind of to hopefully my what i hope is that my work is a is a compendium of these sources that you know that people who can read the book can of course learn about <laughs> what i'm talking about and the questions that i'm asking but can be pointed in myriad other directions to uh, you know to address other questions yeah yeah some of the i think the greatest uh, benefit i've experienced from your work not just in the content but in the footnotes um you know just the the yeah the prismatic sort of uh element of this where there's so many avenues to pursue um mm -hmm. both in some of your work um in encyclopedia entry and also in in uh, in this book. Let's go to this last uh, this last piece here. Um, we've kind of we've talked about worship leaders a good bit and your conversations with them um, and the project is shaped around them really intentionally. But um, uh, let me just ask this third que third question. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I'm a worship leader listening to the podcast, maybe I've read the book, maybe I've not. Um, what do you want me to know as a worship leader or a pastor about contemporary worship music from this project? Hmm. I think there are a couple of, maybe a couple of misconceptions that are in some ways polar opposites, but that I've found that a lot of, you know, worship leaders and music ministers hold to varying degrees. And one misconception, one that we kind of touched touched on earlier, was you know that basically the, the what worship music I choose it doesn't matter. And I think ultimately no one would actually say that they think this, but if we but if we probe deeper to you know their actual practices and the music you know that they choose you know Sunday after Sunday, um, I think there are you know there are many within the evangelical fold that it would a true statement would be you know it doesn't matter if the style i use is homogenous you know as long as it creates an atmosphere for worship for the majority yeah. of people you know who came or another way to think about this statement is that it doesn't matter if 90% of the songs we use is from one mega church in Australia or California mm. or Atlanta as long as it's what people want to hear and it, it keeps them oh, coming sure. back so yeah so i think that music meaning the whole package again the the lyrics the sound the gestures the media the performance um all of those things are profoundly meaningful and you know your choice as a music minister as a worship leader as someone who selects um the prayers that your people sing sunday after sunday your choice to emphasize or to not include certain songs or styles speaks volumes to a mm -hmm. congregation without your having to say a word so i think choosing wisely for 
your congregational setting and seeking out sources that can help inform, you know, your selection are important. And not just, I don't mean, you know, how-to books are important and books of resources and, you know, and songs are important, but I'm thinking of, you know, sources that help you understand all the complicated things that the music of worship means to people and you know that music not only means things people use it to do things yeah. music can help edify it can break down barriers between communities you know but again there's no you know unfortunately fortunately or unfortunately for us there's no one size fits all option yeah. there's no musical panacea that all you need is a <laughs> gerardo marti has written about this this idea that all you need is a gospel choir in your church and right. all of your racial you know conciliation problems will be solved no and mm -hmm. the the second you know so that's one misconception on the one hand another one that is in some ways the you know, kind of the opposite of that is that is coming down too hard or too firmly on what a given song or musical mm -hmm. style or genre means and thinking that it means the same thing to you know to everyone in your yeah. church and i think even though you know music is such a you know, such a complicated and interesting thing because it has both those elements that are, you know, of meaning that are shared across a population, those things that come up in almost everyone's mind, you know, when we hear, you know, just to be extremely generic, a country song versus a rap song versus a, you know, 70s rock song. Um, but there, uh, many of the meanings shift across contexts and individuals. So, you know, one example that I came up in thinking about this is that I've talked to a graduate student about this in the, you know, in the last year or so is that there's, there's a church in town that will not use, that will not sing any songs from a specific U.S. megachurch because mm -hmm. of their theological beliefs, which are well known to anyone who's part of the kind of the <laughs> media sphere. You know, this church is, you know, is, is, has some notoriety, right? And so they, this church doesn't want to be embroiled in that controversy and, you know, doesn't share many of the, um, many of their beliefs or believe that many of their practices are valid. So they avoid their music entirely. Um, whereas I attend a, a small Episcopal church where no one listens to Christian radio and most people are disconnected from evangelical media. I mean, this is, you know, the part where, you know, evangelical and mainline all of these, you know, strange, you know, things yeah. that overlap, but not, not entirely. And so no one has any idea what this church is, what it stands for. And so there are no negative associations. So I've had the choir sing one of their pieces because, yeah. you know, there's, as far as the song itself, it was completely appropriate <laughs> for the liturgical season. There was nothing objectionable yeah. about it. And the, no one in my church knew, you know, who these people were or, you know, or where it was from anyway. So finding out what, what music means to people, listening to their words, listening to what they're saying and what they're not saying, and using that information in some ways becoming, um, you know, using data from your own <laughs> informal ethnography of, yeah. you know, your, um, your church people to inform your choices about music. I think that that yeah. is, um, that's one thing that I, I would hope that, that the book sets out kind of a way to do that and a way to do that that is, you know, that's accessible to, um, to church leaders in local contexts. Yeah. So inviting kind of worship leaders and music ministers to be themselves, their own congregational ethnographers and, <laughs> and knowing that, and not just their, not just the yeah. conduit for, for the sort of mainstream influences of what song should we sing this Sunday? Well, let's see what the top 10 CCLI songs are. Yeah. These two or three are better than these uh, six or seven. And, and so, or make more sense this week or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, but that, yeah. that actually being embedded in the congregational social life and yes. culture and. Um, Absolutely. Responsive. Absolutely. And, and I would say, you know, to worship leaders who are, you know, who are listening, I mean, for first off, thank you, you know, thank you for, you know, for seeking, seeking out, you know, for being interested and curious, you know, enough to, you know, to listen all the way through to this point um, to this <laughs> podcast. But I think, um, you know, you, the sense of you are not alone. I think a lot, some worship leaders who have a skeptical or an inquisitive or, you mm -hmm. know, a, a, 
a curious streak can sometimes feel can feel alone in that. And I hear a lot of terminology knocked around like, oh, I'm such a nerd, you know, that that kind of thing. Yeah. No, it's not a, you know, <laughs> you're a, um, I said, you're a, a, a rational adult who is asking <laughs> good questions about these things. And I think yeah. what, what scholarship, what I'm hoping and what I'm so excited about this podcast, Adam, because this is one of the ways I think that um, you know, that scholars and, and, uh, and practitioners, you know, I think gone or going are the ivory tower days mm -hmm. where scholars are just are asking things that are of interest to like no one, but, but two or three, two or three other people. Um, I know in my work and in, in so many other people's work in, in my field, you know, we are, we're asking some of the same questions, you know, being embedded in the church, we're asking many of the same questions as church leaders, as music ministers. And my work as an ethnographer, mm -hmm. I see it as intended to hold up a mirror to practice, you know, and I would hope that a worship leader that you would come away with, you know, maybe with some new insights about what contemporary worship music, you know, means and, and does, but also, you know, I hope that, um, you know, that, that it can give you new questions to ask, you know, about your context to make you a more effective minister uh, to your people. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, you know, I think I actually just encountered this in another context yesterday, uh, this invitation to think uh, in new ways about what it means to to go to school and to be engaged with people who have PhDs. Mm. Uh, there are these sort of disappointing um, uh, presumptions sometimes that, you know, it, getting educated means <laughs> leaving your roots or leaving the concerns of the church when it comes to theological yeah. education or yep. um, sort of somehow becoming esoteric, uh, which to be fair, some of the questions mm -hmm. and, you know, they, they're kind of esoteric. Yeah. But for those of us who are, who are deeply embedded and interested in the life of the church, you know, finding these ways to have, have direct conversations, learning from, congregations yes not just uh not just telling them how to do something but but you exactly. know receiving and collecting and codifying and making you know putting together uh sort of structures and frameworks like you've done in this book mm -hmm. to say look at these sites and the various places where all of this mm -hmm. comes together and how that's forming our congregations i think that's just such a, a beautiful contribution to breaking down some of those um, vertical hierarchical barriers yeah. that are, are often perceived um, yes. and not necessarily lived among among us who are studying a congregational worship. Yeah, well said, and, and thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks again, Monique, for being with us. Uh, thanks for your work. We'll be sure to to list a full bibliography of your uh, of your research and the, and the work you're doing. Um, no, we'll have we'll have some some highlights for for listeners to. Um, to engage with in our show notes and uh, also on our, our page that will be dedicated to this Excellent. Uh, podcast. So. That's, that's wonderful. And can I put in a quick, a quick plug, a quick advertisement, yeah. if you're interested in, if you found this book or, you know, or this, this discussion helpful to also look for the congregational music studies series from, um, from Routledge. Um, don't be alarmed by the sticker price. They are um, they're credit they're they're academic library priced. Many of them have made it into paperback and uh, an ebook. But this this series is about asking um, asking new questions and coming up with new ways to study congregational music across in global perspective. So mm -hmm. you know if you're interested about you know how contemporary worship music is forming you know churches across the world um, or in um, issues in different traditions, then, then I'd encourage you to check out the, uh, the many books in that series. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Those are, those are key text, key text. We'll include a link to those two. Thanks for joining us on conversations on contemporary worship. We would like to thank the Calvin Institute of Christian worship for funding this project and the divinity school at Duke university for providing support. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can find out more at sites duke.edu backslash contemporary worship check there for additional content including new podcast episodes and supplemental resources that you can use in your classrooms and with your teams and with your congregations stay tuned for more episodes where we will continue this conversation see you next time